Our text tonight is from the book of Mark, chapter 14 and also chapter 15. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then some of those standing near heard this. They said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he had died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Let's pray. Lord, I I pray that um, we would sit and be able to reflect, ponder, meditate, and be changed by uh, looking at the cross tonight. That tonight for all of us, as we're scattered all into our own houses, that you would meet with us, that just like you did in the incarnation and just like you did at the cross, you would come down and meet us where we are at, maybe in our lowness, maybe in our, our own grief, our own somberness, that you would meet us there maybe even in our own loneliness, because you know exactly what it feels like to be lonely. Meet us there, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. These days, uh, we are getting all of us a lot more time to ourselves. Maybe I should say we are getting a lot more time with ourselves. And maybe with all this time to yourself, you may be sitting and realizing some of your gaps, your faults, your past, to use the religious word, your sin. Because for many of us, you're actually seeing yourself more now than ever before. Every time you're on FaceTime or Zoom or Google Hangouts, when you're having a meeting, you see your own face. It would be as if, you know, back in the old days when you used to meet people face to face, if you always had a mirror there looking at yourself. It's super strange these days. You're always seeing yourself. And maybe as you've been looking at yourself more, maybe you are looking within yourself more too. And that would make sense. And as you do, you might have noticed the gaps. You may have seen the anxieties, the coping mechanisms that we all put in and around our lives so we don't have to deal with our lives. Now all those are kind of taken away. We have to sit with ourselves and maybe this year more than ever, you need to come face to face to what is central to the Christian faith. And that is the cross of Jesus and how it brings salvation. On the cross of Christ, it says that Christ washed away our sins by his blood. See, the cross is the primary symbol of our salvation. But how does that work? 
How does one man who suffered and died centuries ago save us from the sin we carry with us today or the sin that we carry within us today? How is Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away our sins and takes away the sins of the world? Now, I don't know if you've seen the movie by Mel Gibson, The Passion of the Christ. The movie depicts in glory detail the crucifixion of our Lord. Every lash, every punch, every torn ligament until Jesus finally breathes his last. But I have a confession. I've only seen the movie once and I barely saw it through my hands over my eyes, like through the the tiny openings of my fingers. And every Good Friday, some preacher somewhere will walk you through all the exact ways Jesus would have died in painful detail. And they tell the congregation that the word excruciating comes from the word out of the cross. I know all this because I've been that preacher before. But here's the thing about the movie, The Passion of the Christ, and the thing about all the preachers who explain in detail the excruciating pain of Jesus on the cross. The gospel accounts of Jesus and his death, they don't do that. None of the accounts of Jesus that we have, none of the gospel accounts actually tell us or focus on the physical sufferings of Christ. They don't focus on the physical pain that Jesus went through. They make all the physical details of Jesus' suffering stunningly brief. And with him, they crucified two thieves, Mark 15, 27. After flogging Jesus, Pilate handed him over to be crucified, Mark 15, 15. Why the brevity? Why is there no detailed description of Jesus' physical suffering? Because the way the gospel writers saw Jesus' death was not the suffering of a warrior at the hands of brutal people, but the suffering of a lover at the hands of people who rejected his love. The passion of Jesus is a love drama. Jesus said as much. He said in John 15, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus frames the laying down of his life on the cross as an act of a lover. And the way this is depicted is evident in the setting of the passion. The way that the writers tell the story of Jesus' death on the cross is all a love and passion story. The cross event starts in a garden with Jesus sweating blood in prayer and it ends in a garden where he's buried in a garden tomb. See, this is very significant because in, in archetypal symbolism, gardens are not for growing vegetables or flowers. Rather, gardens are for lovers. It's the place where lovers go to experience delight, where they drink wine and frolic. The place where Adam and Eve were naked and they didn't know it. The garden is a place where lovers fall and express their love. The gospel writers want to make one thing clear as we read the passion accounts. Jesus is a lover who dies alone and rejected by the very people he has come to love. And to the degree that you see that and grasp that and even accept that is to the the degree in which you see and grasp God. See, most people in Mark's account don't really get it. They think Jesus is a warrior or a great conqueror who will overthrow the enemy. And we all have our own enemies. For the first century Jews, it was the Romans. In different times and in different places, our enemies will vary. And so we too can think that Jesus is on our side, taking on our enemies. But that would be the wrong way to see Jesus and the cross. There are only two people during the passion account of Jesus dying who see Jesus and his cross for what it really is. The first is this woman who comes in while Jesus is eating a dinner the week before his death. 
and breaks open a very expensive bottle of perfume. And the other is a centurion standing under Jesus who is overseeing his crucifixion. Now you would have to understand first century politics to get the subversive nature of this. It's a woman and a Gentile who really understand the cross in the way that Mark is telling the story. The woman who's not named here, but in John's gospel, we learn it is Mary of Bethany. She understands that Jesus as a lover will go to die on a cross. She knows this. So she moves toward Jesus in an act of love in an act of worship and appreciation and brings him her most valued possession an alabaster jar of perfume worth about a year's salary. It was probably her dowry, her, a family heirloom worth everything to her. She takes, she breaks into this meal and then she breaks open this bottle of perfume and she doesn't just pour some out. She breaks the jar and she pours the content on Jesus' head. So it fills his whole body and it fills the entire room with this gorgeous scent. It seems this Mary must have intuited what Jesus was about to do on the cross. And I think her lavish gesture symbolized the deepest meaning of Jesus' passion and death. See, the body of Christ is actually the jar containing the most precious perfume of all time. The perfume of God's love, of God's grace, of God's forgiveness, of God's favor, and of God's spirit. And his body was about to be broken open so that all of those realities could be poured out over you and me. But notice there was people at dinner who said, what a waste. Why would this woman waste so much of an, like waste so much of an expensive bottle of perfume? She could have sold it and done more good with it. Or if she really wanted to pour some out on Jesus, she could have poured out a little bit and sold the rest. Now, this is what we too say about Jesus' death. Did Jesus really have to die? This kind of seems kind of extra, primal, archaic. Jesus dying on the cross. There could have been a more logical way to go about this. He didn't have to die on the cross. We didn't need all of this, this like pouring out that you're doing. We just, you could have just done this in a more logical way. See the perfume of Mary and the death of the son of God is something only lovers understand. When you love something, you give it all. You give it all in romantic acts and even idealistic attempts. You go all in, you go big, you pour it all out. So Jesus says to those dinner guests, leave her alone. She has done something beautiful. She has done a beautiful thing to me. Beautiful is the language of love. Jesus is about to do the most beautiful thing this world has ever seen. He is about to be broken open so that the fragrance of forgiveness and the scent of salvation can be given to you and I. I've often pondered if those who were beating Jesus as they executed him ever wondered why he smelled so good. Maybe, maybe not. But there was one soldier who saw it. One who saw what Jesus's body on the cross was and what it all meant. As Jesus hung on the cross and breathed his last breath, Mark records two things happening. The first, that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And the second, it was that the centurion, when he saw how Jesus died, said, surely this man is the son of God. The temple curtain being torn in two is about access. See, up to this point, the curtain in the temple hid the holy of holies. 
Only the priests to do sacred ritual were able to go behind the curtain after some serious religious ritual cleansing, not to, so they wouldn't enter the, into the Holy of Holies in any impure way. What the gospels are saying is that when they, when they tell us about the, the death of Jesus and how it ripped the temple veil from top to bottom, what the gospel is saying is that the cross of Jesus took away the veil that prevents us ordinary, sinful, broken people from seeing into the true holy of holies. That is to sing truly into the inner heart of God. In Jesus' death, we see what God is like. We see God's heart. We see who God is, which is why the next thing Mark records is a soldier at the foot of the cross proclaiming he really is God. He's showing us what God is like. He's showing us God's holy of holies. He's showing us God's inner heart. Jesus has been going around up to this point in Mark's gospel. He's been going around doing his ministry, proving that he was indeed the the Messiah, proving that he was indeed the son of God, but he wouldn't let anyone talk about it. So throughout Mark's gospel, when someone gets it, that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus tells them to be quiet or he tells them not to say anything. Scholars call this the secret messianic motif. Everyone is to be quiet about it in Mark's gospel because they don't have the full picture. Not until Jesus dies out of love and the veil is torn so we can see into God's God's heart that someone is finally able to say to the audience, this is God. Before that, they don't have the whole picture. Before that, they don't really get to see in the heart of God. But as soon as Jesus dies on the cross and he breathes his last, finally someone says, this is God. This is God loving you when the world rejects him. This is God forgiving even before you realize you did anything wrong. This is God dying in your place so that you can have his life. So what do you do with yourself and the sin you have been carrying? The gap between who you are and who you know you need to be. The brokenness that might be more apparent now that you are with yourself more the fear that you have that is really underneath all the anxiety you carry around always, anyways, what do you do? Look to the cross. See Jesus, his grace, his mercy, his work of love on your behalf. You look and like a reciprocal lover does, you receive his love. You take it in and you drink deeply from this love. Let's pray. Lord, I I pray that as we even contemplate and think about how the things that we're sitting with, the the gaps, the, the, the brokenness, the sin, however we want to frame it, we all know it's there. And as we've been sitting with ourselves, as we're sitting with maybe our family more or people more than we we have in a very long time, maybe some of those gaps, some of those inconsistencies are being more apparent and we don't know what to do. Of course, we try to go to maybe blogs or, or, or podcasts or different, asking different people, what should we do? But ultimately, Lord, I, I just believe we need to turn, we need to look to the cross. And there we see a love, a lover's embrace. We see you moving toward us in grace and unconditional love, giving yourself so that we can have life with you, giving yourself so that the, the veil can be torn and we can see into your heart. And I pray, God, that we would love you back. In Jesus' name, amen.